Welcome, Welcome to, to the Mixtape. I'm Natalie. And I'm Valerie. And before we kick off this week's episode, I have something very serious to share. <laughs> and that's a big fact check from our conversation with Sarah and Brody, where I very confidently and incorrectly said last week that It Takes Two by Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock is not from the 80s because it actually very much is. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> it was released in 1988. And is absolutely fitting for Brody's mixtape, so I would like to formally apologize to Rob Bass, DJ Easy Rock, and all of our listeners who might have been cursing my name last week as they listened to me make that statement. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay, Val. I was with you. I thought for sure it was later than the 80s, so it's all good. Yeah. You know, we're just trying to, we're just having fun on we're the next fun. day. Yeah. <laughs> but we do have more fun in store for you today because we're going international. Get your passports. We're headed on a trip. Today, our guest joins us from Switzerland, and we are so grateful to have her on the podcast. Dr. Katrin Preller is joining our client solutions lead for executive search, Jocelyn Scott, to discuss psychedelics and mental health. So without further ado, here's Jocelyn and Katrin. Hello, I am Jocelyn Scott. Um, here at Mixed Talent, I'm a Client Solutions Director specific to retained executive search. One of the things I most appreciate about my job is the opportunity to connect with and learn from really fascinating people doing groundbreaking work in life sciences. Today's guest is definitely representative of that. I'm excited to introduce Dr. Katrin Preller, and I want to discuss what she's uncovered through her work with psychedelics research and the potential for breakthroughs in mental health treatment. So let me start with the introduction. Um, Katrin received her master's in science in neuropsychology and clinical psychology from the University of Konstanz in Germany. She then completed her PhD at the University of Zurich investigating the effects of psychedelics on self-perception and social cognition at the Neuropsychopharmacology and Brain Imaging Lab. Katrin was appointed as a junior group leader at the University of Zurich, and she holds a position as a visiting assistant professor at Yale University. Dr. Preller is a recipient of the Pfizer Research Reward and the Swiss Society for Biological Psychiatry Young Investigators Award. Her group's research focus is centered on the neurobiology and pharmacology of cognitive and emotional processes in health and disease. Also, the development of novel treatment approaches and the interaction between pharmacological and non-pharmacological treatments. Welcome, Katrin. Thank you for joining us here on The Mixtape. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm super excited to be here, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. I am too. This is, I think there's a lot of folks across our organization who are excited about this. Once we delved into this space, um, there was interest across our organization. And then I've noticed increased client interest in this exact space and getting into it. Um, so the timing's good. Quick story on how we connected. Fall of 2021, uh, one of our clients asked us to identify potential candidates for scientific leadership roles who would bring in that hands-on experience with psychedelics research into their company. Um, as I started to connect with the various thought leaders in the space, Katrin's name kept coming up as someone I should talk to. 
and I tracked you down and you were very gracious to give me your time. We worked across our, uh, our six hour time zone difference, um, connected on Zoom and we did a lot of uh, talking about the space, a lot of networking. Um, what stood out to me about your research was really seeing the potential for treatment in what you were able to share with me. And I think that also came from the ease of understanding, uh, you know, the work that you do with brain map mapping made it easier for me to see how this could actually turn into something. Um, so I'd love to start with your background and your research journey. What led you to this area of research? Thank you so much. Yeah, um, I started off uh, studying psychology in Germany uh, with a focus on clinical and neuropsychology. And um, back then I was still, I still am, but back then I was really driven by trying to understand the neuropharmacology of our brain. Because, I mean, we have all these little molecules in our brain, right? And um, they just make us fall in love or they make us perform like the most complex cognitive tasks or they may even alter the consciousness state we're in so isn't that just super cool and fascinating and yeah so after I completed my master's I was like yeah I really really want to understand what's going on and the opportunity that came up was a PhD position at the University of Zurich and there we were mainly investigating long-term effects of people who perturb their pharmacological system um, chronically by using illicit drugs. And um, yeah, we looked at these brains, we looked at you know, behavioral changes, we looked at um, their fMRI scans, just to find out um, you know, what is altered when you, you know, stimulate your system over and over again. And I think that this is really important work because it directly can help patients who suffer from addiction disorders. However, it did not quite satisfy this interest in, you know, really understanding what is going on on the receptor level in the brain. But at that time, um, after I came to Zurich, I also learned about psychedelic research, which was happening right at the institution where I was. and. I got really interested in that and thought like, wow, I mean, that could actually be the window into the neuropharmacology that I was looking for. And yeah, so I started doing a postdoc after I graduated, um, doing psychedelic research. We were mainly looking into um, what happens after a healthy participant has taken these substances. So we had them do a lot of tasks. We had them in the brain scanner and we just try to find out what's happening mechanistically once these substances are on board. And um, then we extended this program a little bit where we're, we're starting to focus more on like classical phase one studies, like what of these, which of these effects could be helpful for helping patient populations. So um, what is what is something that, you know, would really benefit if you use it in the treatment of patients. Um, I then went to University College London and to Yale University um, and then returned back to Zurich and uh, started a research group there. And that was then the time when we really started to do these clinical trials. So using psychedelic and phase two trials, um, trying to find out if they help various patient groups. So we're mainly working with depressed patients and alcohol addicted patients right now. 
Um, and we're also trying to find out why they help these patients. That's great. That's great. It was interesting as I was doing my research, so much brought me back to Europe. Um, and I guess it makes sense based on, I, I would imagine, from what I understand, in the United States, researchers weren't necessarily able to access these compounds for a period of time. Um, I, I connected with so many of your colleagues in London, uh, coming from that group, learned just an amazing amount um, working with these folks. And I was excited to see in this community of scientists the interconnectedness and the helpfulness. Everybody, you know, even if they weren't interested in the opportunity I was trying to recruit them for, was willing to help me and willing to spend time with me and connect me with the right people. So it was nice to see. Um, I, you know, I really specifically, when I looked at your work around the neurobiology of psychedelics and that brain mapping imaging, for me, that was eye-opening. Um, and again, I'm a layman, so you know, to be able to see in, in, in black and white and color um, in the maps that you put together where this was actually happening and what it was impacting in the brain, um, it blew my mind, <laughs> to be honest with you. So kind of at a high level, what have your findings been? What have you seen? Yeah, so what we have been doing is um, two different ways of trying to find out what these substances do. And one is basically just like administering the substance and not having our participants do anything. So they just lie in the scanner and we just observe what the brain is doing when it's under the influence of the substance. And um, this is usually leading to these really colorful brain maps that you saw. And yeah, so what we found out using this specific method is that, well, first of all, there is a structure in our brain. It's, it's like pretty much at the center of the brain, um, but it is specifically there for gating information to the cortex. So what that means is it is basically filtering important information from unimportant information and only um, keeps the important information for further processing in these cortical brain regions. So that's the first first step, the first gate that everything that comes from either our own body or um, from the environment needs to pass. And what we've seen there is that the this brain region, the thalamus, um, is not working as it usually does under the influence of psychedelics. And this holds true for LSD as well as psilocybin. So this filtering function is, is just not working as it usually does. Um, meaning that, you know, different kinds of information pass on to, to the cortex. And what we've seen is then looking at the cortex, um, that the brain regions which are responsible for um, receiving all this input from our senses, like our visual input, our auditory input, etc., that these brain regions are very highly connected to the rest of the brain and with each other. So that speaks for um, really increased sensory processing. There's a lot of sensory stimulation there. And that is kind of aligned with what our participants also report. Like it's a very sensual state. There's a lot going on. Um, but at the same time, we also see that these other brain regions, which do not directly receive the input, um, but which are responsible for bringing everything together 
and forming a coherent picture and connecting this information with um, our past experiences with what we already know but also with you know what we're planning to do and everything like that so these integration areas association cortices they are less connected to the rest of the brain um, so basically the way we interpret this this picture is that we have heightened sensory processing which is not counterbalanced by integration capacity so we um, we bring this information together in a new way, in an unusual way. And that might explain why our participants report that they experience themselves and the world in a way that they never have, or why, you know, the, the visual illusions that most of our participants perceive happen, because we bring this information together differently than we usually do. And especially this part where, you know, we see ourselves in a new light or we see the world differently. This might be something that it might actually be helpful for patients who are often stuck in rigid thinking patterns and um, loops that they cannot really get out of. So basically opening a new perspective and a different way of thinking, at least for a limited time may be helpful for these patients to break free from these thinking patterns. Yeah, that was that that that, that really stood out to me in um, the presentation I watched uh, from last fall that you did. And you kind of talked about the key areas that you were you felt you were really able to um, explore and identify and ultimately create more questions as a result of this exploration and identification, but you talked about the alterations in the brain networks. You talked about the alterations in award and emotion processing, which I thought was really interesting, um, and increased social connectedness, all of which make sense when you think about somebody with depression or, or other types of behavioral um, issues that, that, that could... Uh, uh, could be impacted. I, the react the reduced reactivity to the negative t stimuli too. That was really interesting to me. Um, do you want to expand on any of that and kind of how you were able to see that? Yeah, absolutely. So for testing these very specific reactions to the environment, there we usually use tasks. So we don't just have people lie in the scanner, but we actually ask them to do something, and. Um, it, when it comes to emotion processing, what we did there is we showed our participants positive pictures, we showed them negative pictures, we showed them neutral pictures, and then measured how the brain reacts to these pictures. And um, what we know is that there is a specific area in the brain called the amygdala, which is kind of our emotional center of the brain. And um, the amygdala is usually very reactive to these emotional stimuli. And um, under the influence of psilocybin, and as other groups have later also shown also LSD, and the, the influence of these substances, um, our amygdala is less reactive to negative input. And the reason why we think that this is important is because we know that depressed individuals, um, when we do the exact same tasks with these patients, their amygdala is even more reactive to these negative images than healthy control participants. 
So that led us to the hypothesis that um, psilocybin and LSD might be able to normalize this heightened reactivity to negative images and then of course also help these patients to again break free from you know negative thinking loops like perceiving the environment in a very negative way perceiving themselves in a very negative way and that um, psilocybin and LSD might help to normalize um, uh, normalize that that's amazing I am um... We've, we've learned a bit about the amygdala through some executive coaching work that I've been involved in. And we talk about the amygdala hijack, specifically like if you're getting feedback from somebody that maybe you don't react to it well because you get hijacked by that amygdala. So when I you know heard you talk about that, it kind of really resonated with things that I've been learning about or, or, or hearing about recently. Um, no, that, that, that totally makes sense. And then what about, you know, one of the things that stood out to me um, too was the task that you did around cyberball, um, and and I think that was the negative stimuli one, isn't it? You or kind of so. Um... Uh, so for for this first for this amygdala reactivity paradigm, we really use like standardized um, negative pictures, which could be pretty much any, anything like an aggressive animal or a gun or you know everything that people usually perceive to be negative. Um, but um, the cyberball paradigm that you're mentioning is tapping kind of in the same direction but not quite because here for the first time we use social stimuli and the reason why i was really interested in um you know how uh, how psychedelics may alter social cognition social behavior is because first of all we basically know very little about the social pharmacology in our brain even though you know social behavior is so important in our everyday life and at the same time we also know that there's a big social component when we're again talking about uh, patients so often they suffer from they feel isolated from their social environment um, they, there's a lot of social withdrawal happening and we don't really have good treatments for that um, and so I was really interested in, you know, what what happens on a social level if we administer LSD and psilocybin. And because we already knew that um, psychedelics reduce the reaction to, um, to negative input, I was wondering whether that also extends to negative social um, input, so social rejection. Again, because we also know that a lot of the patients that you know we see in the clinics are experiencing a lot of social rejection. And again, when we do the same paradigm with these patients, we see that they react very strongly to these uh, to to social rejection. In particular, people suffering from borderline personality disorder, for example. Now. So we did this paradigm, which basically means that our patient or, or sorry, our healthy, healthy, healthy participant in that case, um, he comes to our study site, he meets two other people, they say hello to him. Um, we tell everyone, yeah, you'll meet back when you're in the scanner, you'll see each other on the screen. And 
then we administer the substance, in that case that was psilocybin, um, they go into the scanner and they see these two other people. And what they can do is they can throw, throw a ball to each other. But then what happens is that these other two people start excluding our partic participant from the game. They just don't throw the ball to them anymore. And we know that you know this social rejection um, induces this very specific signal in the brain. Um, and also we know when we just ask our participants later on, like how, how did that make you feel? That even though it's, you know, I mean, it's only a game, right? But basically everyone gets out of the scanner and is like, wow, this was really mean. Like I did not expect that. That was so mean. So it's inducing this emotional response. And at the same time, it's inducing a pretty, um, you know, a, a signal in the brain, the anterior cingulate cortex that has been called the social pain signal. So we did that with and without psilocybin and we saw that this social pain signal was reduced um, under the influence of a psychedelic and also that people um, just, you know, did not feel so excluded anymore. So we, we asked a lot of control questions, of course, making sure that they were really aware that they were being excluded, etc. And they knew all of that. But the only thing that was changed was really that feeling of being excluded. Wow. Yeah. I, I That one, again, stood out to me because you were able to see that social pain light up in the brain. Um, and then also the correlation with how, is it borderline personality disorder where you're seeing that or that same sort of light up in the brain for patients who are suffering with that? Yeah. So that's another study that we did not do ourselves. Um, but we, we know from the literature, um, for example, in borderline personality disorder patients that, you know, for them, um, it's it's even worse than for healthy controls. And um, now, of course, you know, we, we're hoping to do things like that in a translational approach where we eventually can test what we've seen in our healthy participants and see whether psilocybin also reduces this heightened um, response in clinical populations, for example, in, in depressed patients. We're not quite there yet. We have um, studied this amygdala response and these data are being being analyzed basically as we speak. But um, we have also run a couple of social tests in our MDD patients, but it's, you cannot do everything in one study, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I get it. It feels like you're, you've done a lot. Your group has done a lot. And again, I, I, I was able to have a, a a good amount of conversations in the space over the course of about three months. Um, what else are you seeing? What else is out there on the landscape? What are others doing in the space that looks promising to you? Yeah, I mean, of course, there's a lot going on in that space right now. So there's increased interest, you know, where there hasn't been any interest for decades. Now, you know, there's so much going on. And I think one really important thing that is going on is that, you know, these clinical trials which you know we had back in the 50s and 60s, of course, but then nothing has happened for a long time until very recently. So these clinical trials are starting now again. So I mentioned the two trials that we are currently running in depressed uh, patients, which just recently finished, and um, substance use disorder patients. Um, but of course, we're not the only ones running these trials. So there are quite a few uh, trials going on, also in different indications like OCD, for example. Um, and I think, you know, we, to really be able to tell 
whether these substances are really helpful for patients and can be developed as treatments. Um, we need these clinical trials and we need to have them well controlled and we need, um, we need you know, a decent amount of patients as well. And I think the field is really moving um, in, in that direction and you know, we will get um, a better impression of you know, whether it's really helpful or not in the very near future. However, there's also one thing where I think um, the field is missing opportunities right now. And that is um, this other question to explore why these substances are helpful, to really find the mechanism of action that, um, yeah, that eventually helps people and that, you know, contributes to symptom relief and all these types of things because we might have something really big here right it might be a transdiagnostic mechanism of action because right now it seems like psilocybin assisted therapy helps people across various diagnoses like uh, we already talked about substance use we talked about mdd ocd and you know potentially even more and um i mean that would be uh, I would consider there's a breakthrough in psychiatry um, if we find this transdiagnostic mechanism of action and, you know, would be able to leverage this and, you know, also would be able to optimize the therapy in a way that, you know, it's most beneficial for each and every patient. And I think, um, of course, right now everyone wants to know, well, do they really help? But I really think that, um, you know, understanding why they help is just equally important. Yeah, no, that, that, that really makes sense to me. It's another thing that I just remembered from your presentation was, you know, you were able to prove that the serotonin receptors truly had a play in the mechanism of action here um, through what you did with your patients. You gave some patients that, that drug, was it ketanserine? Ketanserine? That blocks those receptors um, and, and you could see that there was just a completely different, uh, way that the compounds were interacting with the brain when you had those receptors blocked. Yeah, absolutely. So that's another one of these mechanistic trials that we did in healthy participants. So we first administered cadenserin, which blocks specifically or more or less specifically the serotonin 2A receptor. Now, um, we then administered uh, LSD or psilocybin, and both of these substances, um, they target a lot of receptors. It's not only the serotonin 2A. Um, they, they target quite, quite a few other serotonin as well, in the case of LSD, other dopamine receptors. And we wanted to find out, well, which one of these receptors is the one which is responsible for all these effects. And um, the serotonin 2A receptor we already knew from animal studies is the most, or the is the one which is probably responsible for all of this, but we didn't know in humans. Um, yeah, so we blocked this receptor, we administered the psychedelic substance, and we saw that you know there's basically no effect anymore. So I mean, imagine that, right? So you you have a participant and they are on LSD. We administered the substance, but they're not feeling anything. So we, yeah, we could not distinguish them at all from, you know, from the participants where we had administered placebo. And um, I think that was, uh, that was pretty cool because, you know, um, 
the at, at the next occasion um they would receive only lsd and they would go into this completely altered state of consciousness but yeah if you block the serotonin to a receptor you know things are there's there's nothing at least at the doses that we tested yeah totally totally i um and again looked very black and white from my from my non-scientific perspective um you touched on treatment implications. I think this is the place where people always, you know, seem to have the most questions. How could this actually work? What would it look like? What would the setting be? Um, I've heard a few different versions of what people are envisioning. And then when you and I connected last uh, year, we talked about the potential for personalized healthcare in neuropsychiatry. Um, we talked about potentially getting patients off the need to medicate chronically. Uh, with this type of treatment, expand on that a little bit. What you know, and I know you just started to touch on treatments, but but what do you think is is really looking realistic um, for treatments for patients? Yeah, yeah. So the data that we have so far are telling us that with only either a single or maybe two administrations, we can achieve long term beneficial effects. So people are doing better after really minimal exposure to the substance. And that is new. That's something different. That is not what, you know, the medication that is now on the market is doing. There you really need to take them every single day. But here we're talking about really a very limited amount of, you know, actual actual exposure to the substance. And um, yeah, that is that would basically be, you know, a revolution. It would really be um a completely different treatment model i have to say though that of course um we are not administering these substances um in without any context but they they are embedded in therapeutic work so we prepare our participants um we have you know the active session but then there is you know more therapy going on afterwards to integrate what they have experienced to make sense of the experience and also see how this can then be translated into something that you know helps patients in their everyday life so um but still it is kind of you know it's it's it's, it's a short term therapy and it seems to have long lasting effects Again, we don't know how long lasting the effects are. Um, so usually um, people are followed up to about three, six, or in some studies, 12 months. Um, and it's very possible that there will be a relapse um, at one point. So I'm not saying that, you know, everyone who participates in these um in these uh, ther in, in psychedelic assisted therapy will be healed afterwards. Um, but, you know, we do see long term effects. And I think that's, you know, that that's super cool. And this is really something very, very new. And yeah, and, and I and a very different treatment model. It's, um, it's definitely hit the press here in the US, the work that MAPS has been doing with their PTSD patients with MDMA um, and kind of, you know, it's been on all over the, the national news, I would say, updating people. And I think that's created a lot of interest, too, because it does seem like this combination of, you know, treatment and therapy and what the work that's being done while you're in that state is representing some breakthroughs and some long-term cures. Um, so it's exciting. 
Yeah, I, I truly think it is. Um, and I think um, that's another thing where um, we really need to understand the mechanism of action, because as you just said, right, the work that we do during um, the active session, um, well, I, we, we don't quite know whether it's the work that we do in the active session or whether it's the work, the therapeutic work we do like right after the active session. And, you know, I think there's a lot of room for optimization still. And if we know what is really important, like is it induced neuroplasticity? Is it changes in the serotonin 2A receptor? Is it something more psychological? If we knew the answer to these questions, we could even we could probably be even better in using these substances as a therapeutic approach. And that's why I think it's really important to to answer all these mechanistic questions here. And also the other thing that we're really hoping for is that because these substances have these very clear um, subjective effects, so people are experiencing something that, you know, we can eventually probably tailor um, the administration and the therapy um, to, uh, to the personal needs, right? To really find biomarkers um, that may be predictive of, you know, therapeutic outcome and and all these kinds of things because you know it's it's we already started to link what's going on in the brain to you know baseline functional connectivity or to subjective experiences and things like that so um this would maybe these substances really have the potential to lead the way for personalized medicine and i think um that's another you know really big thing in psychiatry yeah, it's amazing. I um, uh, and the the biomarkers that has to do with the mapping, right? The brain mapping and kind of seeing how. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Sorry, I didn't let you talk there. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're 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 absolutely right. We're, you're absolutely right. We're we're looking for biological signal, um, that may uh, tell us, you know, how good the chances are that someone will respond in a be beneficial way to these substances. Um, we're doing, we, right now we're doing a lot of work with fMRI, but you know, we're not restricted to that. It could be, you know, any predictive signal really um, that helps us, you know, understand why what someone is, you know, is having this very positive response and, you know, has a really long-term beneficial effects and others maybe not. And um, I really think that we, do have a chance when it comes to psychedelics. That's great. It's, it's so exciting. I clearly, you know, what I've I've heard from you here today, and then also in your your previous presentations, still a lot of questions. There's still a lot that needs to be uncovered. Um, do you have any ideas? And I I know it's again a lot of questions, but how far away are we from the answers? Any sense of when we might be to a place or at a place where this could really have impact for patients? Yeah, um, I mean, for, for these substances to really be broadly available, they need to undergo the same procedure as every new medication. So um, that means phase two studies, larger phase three trials, and then, you know, filing um, at the FDA for it to become, you know, a regular medication. And I think um, right now we're, you know, most most um, academic centers are completing these phase two trials, but the big phase three trials are currently um, not quite there yet, but will probably happen in the very near future. 
and very much will depend on whether these trials show positive effects or not. Um, if they do, then um, I think chances are not too bad um, that this will become, you know, another tool in a psychiatrist's toolbox to help people. Um, but it might still be five, six, seven years. It's really very much depending on the data and how the regulatory authorities assess these data, because we have, you know, it's as I said, like it's it's a kind of a novel treatment model. It comes together with the therapy. We will need to figure out what training is needed for therapists to be able to administer the substance, to be able to perform the therapy. Um, we also have a bit of an issue with the blinding. So for most participants, it becomes pretty clear whether they had the active substance or not. And I think these are all questions that are still that we still don't have really good answers to. So there is more work that needs to be done. So I wouldn't hope for a very fast process. Um, but realistically, I'd say like, well, give the field another five to 10 years. Got it. Got it. There has certainly been increased interest uh, from the investor community. Um, I think that uh, some of the larger companies are starting to to back smaller studies as well from what I've seen. So, you know, once you start to see the, 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 the investment flowing into this space, that could potentially impact how quickly we can get into some of those uh, more extended trials. So that's so exciting. Katrin, this was great. Now, I have to ask you um, a couple of questions that we ask everybody here on the mixtape. Um, number one, what was your favorite, or you could even say the oddest, um, interview question you've ever been asked? Yeah, so I don't necessarily know if there was even ever a really odd question. I mean, I, I like answering all kinds of questions, but there is um, one question that um, I get repeatedly, and this is how can I get involved in this? Um, and I think that's an awesome question, especially a lot of um you know, junior scientists, psychology students, etc., ask me that, and my my um, my answer is usually like, yeah, figure out what exactly you want to do. I don't think I mean psychedelics is just such a broad field, right? You can enter it as a therapist, you can enter it as um, you know a medical doctor, but you can also you know enter it as a computer scientist or um, or or you know a philosopher. So there there's so many ways of how to approach this field that you know just figure out what you really want to do and you know be good at that and then add psychedelics to that and of course if you're not you know necessarily um necessarily aiming for a career in in research then of course there are many many other ways of how to get involved one is um, you know, as you just said, like, obviously, we're always lacking funding. So that's a way to get involved. Or, for example, um, basically, donate your time by participating in these, uh, in these studies. And not all of them, of course, involve taking a psychedelic, and um, that all of them involve traveling somewhere, there are surveys going on, um, where, again, you don't even ha need to have used these substances before. There are just so many ways, um, how people can contribute to that. And, you know, without all the people who are contributing in these various ways, we wouldn't be able to do the research at all. That's great. Uh, that's a good reminder, too, before I ask you the next question. 
we are going to include the link to the study you're doing right now um, so that anybody who listens to this or takes a look at what we're doing here um, can kick, click on that link and get involved themselves um, in a study, which I think is great. Wonderful. That is amazing. And as I said, you don't need to have any experience with psychedelics to participate. Um, if you do, that's good, but there's no need to have any experience to support this study. Good, 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 good. Okay, and then the next question that we ask every guest is um, your favorite song. We're going to actually include it on our uh, our uh, a mixtape that we um, have along with the podcast. So what's your favorite song? Yeah, that might actually be the best question that I've ever received in an interview. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I love it. I love it so much. Um, yeah, so uh, I have always liked the band called uh, the Cat Empire. And right now in these times, I would put uh, the Chariot on the list. Fantastic. All right, good. Well, that will be added to the list for sure. Um, this has been great. Um, you know, I think kind of the key takeaways for me are, yes, we still have a lot of questions. Um, this truly looks to be groundbreaking work in this space and potential um, transformative uh, options and therapies for the patients who are impacted. Um, and, and, you know, we need involvement. We, we need more funding. We need more studies. We need more involvement at all levels um, to see this actually come to fruition. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, I think there will be great progresses in um, in the next few years. And, you know, I hope that, you know, in a couple of years, I can can come back and tell you, you know, about what's happened in the meantime. Well, I can't wait to hear the results of your clinical trial, which I know are pending. So I'll be keeping my eyes open to see that. Um, and Katrin, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing um, your information with us. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much to Jocelyn and Katrin for joining us for our episode today. I think it's really interesting that um, if maybe if Katrin didn't even find the group that was doing this type of study, she may not have even been able to get into the amount of work that she's been able to achieve so far. So it kind of goes to show that um, really exploring all the potential avenues or sometimes you just happen upon the right opportunity can lend you down such an awesome path for the rest of your career. Mm -hmm. I have the same thought listening to this. And I think this is just such an interesting topic and it has so much potential. Like they mentioned, this could be a huge breakthrough in psychiatry. And I'm personally really looking forward to seeing how this progresses over time and how these breakthroughs can really you know, hopefully make a difference for people. Um, you know, I think we see this in our friends or family or, or peer groups that a lot of people do struggle with mental illness or anxiety, depression. Um, a lot of people our age are on medication and are just kind of trying to find ways to work through it. And I think, you know, the more the merrier in terms of finding research and uh, progression in, in treatment. So I'm really interested to see how this progresses. And uh, we will be sharing a link to participate in Katrin's study in the show notes, as well as on our Mixed Talent LinkedIn page. So keep an eye out for that if you would like to participate. I'm excited to check out the study. I'm excited to check out these brain scans that Katrin and Jocelyn were discussing because 
They sound so cool. I'm really excited to get a visual for what we've been hearing about in this episode. Mm -hmm. And additionally, can't wait to add her song to the playlist. As a reminder, you can check out all of the songs of our guests on the mixtape playlist on Spotify. We've got a new episode each week for our podcast. And as always, thanks for being in the mix. We'll see you next week.